Hi, thank you for listening to the Spotlight Report, our weekly podcast in which we sit down and speak with current academics about their life and research in lab. If you like the Spotlight Report, you can subscribe on iTunes, like our Facebook page, or find it on any common podcast app. You can also directly find the podcast on our website, which is loft.optics.arizona.edu backslash podcast. Please comment any questions or ideas for people you would like us to interview in the future. Additionally, if you have more feedback, feel free to email us at thespotlightreport at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Spotlight Report, our guest is Daniel Spencer. He is a podiatrist student, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about what podiatry is. Um, I don't know how familiar our listeners are with it, but it is certainly an interesting field, and there are a lot of new endeavors being made. Uh, and our co-host, Chung Yu, is here as well again. Right, finally. Yeah. And uh, so, Daniel, thank you for being here. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Happy to talk. Great. Um, so why don't you go ahead and tell us what brought you into medical school? Sure. Um, well, um, I could go with the generic answer. I just want to help people. Um, but I think that that's quite uh, vague. It's a, it's a good go-to answer, but I think everybody needs to have a little bit more of a specific reason for what how they want to help people and how the field is actually going to help them as well. You know, you don't shouldn't be a one-way relationship with your profession. I feel like you should also derive some sort of meaning from it. And so in in general medicine, um, I was first exposed to it because my grandpa was a family practitioner um, many years ago. Um, And uh, I sort of uh, was exposed to it that way. And I saw the impact that he had on his community and uh, what he was able to do with his life, even outside of medicine, but through having a life um, uh, where he was a doctor. So uh, it allowed him to pursue other goals as well. So I think that sort of uh, robust life was appealing. Um, But for me individually, as I sort of uh, sussed it out, um, uh, thinking about it through undergrad and uh, even now, I think the best way that I can describe it is because it's uh, sort of feeds a means and an end, if you know what I mean. Um, the means, um, I mean, the end being that I do get to help people and it's a tangible, meaningful impact that not a lot of pre- professions have, you know, a very personal relationship with people. But at the same time, it's also something that allows me to pursue other goals in life, um, outside of medicine, you know, I have other passions. And so um, I I think that uh, that was something that got me interested in medicine, the fact that you have that meaningful impact, but also have these other things that you're able to pursue because of the lifestyle of it. Um, You know, and and outside of that, I think that um, I can be a somewhat uh, ambitious person. So the challenge is something that you sort of look towards being such a person. and then beyond that, uh, I think it's just a very stimulating field. There's, 
I wasn't particularly great at any one thing in, uh, in all my education growing up. I was good at a lot of things, but I wasn't like awesome at, at math um, or uh, any particular thing. So I think that it, it, it is uh, an interesting field where you get to use communication skills, um, scientific understanding, critical thinking, and sort of wrapping all those together. So it's, it's very stimulating that way. Yeah, I know uh, to tie this back in with optics, you guys have to take, you have to, there's some optics on the medical, the MCAT, right? Yeah, we, you know, we have to, uh, there are different sections. Now the MCAT is actually, I think it's uh, quite a bit different than when I took it. A couple of years afterwards, they, they changed it up a bit. So I don't know what it is now. I think they tried to emphasize a little bit more humanities, which I think is great, but um uh, there was a physics section, um, and so it was pretty much it, it, all of the undergrad physics, like one and two um, uh, concepts and problems were all fair game. Uh, and then they had biology, they had a writing section, which a lot of people blew off. Um, <laughs> but uh, physics was actually the one that I, I scored the, the best on, and so that was like the one that I needed to hang my hat on in order to get my, my MCAT score. Perfect. Um, so at least for myself, I don't know about you, Xiangyu, but I wasn't particularly familiar with podiatry. Um, yeah, not, not, not many people are. And, and, uh, I bet half of your listeners are already confused. I want to say it's not pediatrics, it's, it's podiatry. So, uh, usually right. I say, oh, I'm a podiatrist and they say, oh, you like kids. <laughs> like, well, um, <laughs> we, have, we actually have a very similar issue with, uh, you say you're an optical engineer and they go, Oh, you work on eyeglasses. Yeah. <laughs> we could. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Theoretically. And, and same um, with me, we, we work in with pediatrics as well. So, <laughs> right. Right. Um, so why don't you go ahead and first of all, why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners where you are? Um, in medical school, because I think that you have your, your positioning is that you have a lot of credentials to speak about it. And, uh, beyond that, if you could describe what podiatry is. Sure. So, um, first of all, my, I had an undergrad at university of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and then I took a year off and then came to Southern California. I've, my college is, uh, Western university of health sciences. It's in Pomona, which is east of LA, about 40 miles or so. And um, it's a health profession school. They actually have a, a DO program. If you're not familiar with that, it's Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine. It's very similar to the run-of-the-mill MD uh, medical school. So I took my first uh, two years of courses in science work from uh, anatomy to uh, um, cardiology, neurology, everything with those students. Um, and then the second two years, you do your clinical rotations pretty much. Um, I am at the very end of all of that right now, I'm happy to say. Um, I'm a, a fourth year podiatry student and uh, I've, uh, I'm starting my last rotation uh, on Monday and that'll be a four week rotation. After that, I'll graduate and uh, I've already uh, gotten placed into a a three-year residency program 
uh, in Houston. I found that out last Friday. So that was the big news for, for me. It's like the culmination of all of your medical training is like where you're going to do your residency or if you get a residency. Um, in podiatry, we do three years of uh, residency and a lot of that's uh, surgical training. All podiatrists have to graduate with that training, whether or not you want to practice or not with it. Um, so I am right at the precipice of starting out again on another bottom rung of the ladder as an intern in residency. <laughs> well, uh, I guess congrats on, uh, on the placement. I know that that's very exciting. Um, Thank you. So what is podiatry? Right. Um, getting to your question. So um, podiatry is uh, a very interesting field. It, if I could just boil it down, I'll say that it is um, the practice of medicine and surgery um, particular to the lower extremity. And what I mean by that is that we take care of any pathology, any issue, um, problem that people have with the foot and ankle, as well as any of the soft tissues, such as muscles, tendons, uh, nerves, and things like that, vasculature that cross that ankle joint. So we have a lot of like our calf muscles, like our, you say your gastrosoleal complex, that we will take care of, even though it's it starts above the ankle. Um, but the bony work that we do is pretty much ankle and below. Um, and it's interesting because in podiatry, it's, it's not that we only do surgery um, or something like that, but it actually incorporates many different fields because it's particular to a part of the body, which is an interesting way to practice medicine. That's not really the case with a lot of other um, types right. of medicine. Right. So uh, we incorporate dermatology, um, all sorts of uh, like skin infections and uh, wounds to uh, uh, neurological issues, patients that have uh, uh, neuropathy, um, all musculoskeletal issues, a uh, lot of vascular issues. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we do, deal with pediatrics. Um, we also deal with geriatrics. A lot of old people have foot problems after a life of walking on your feet. And, uh, and everything up to wound care, radiology, actually, and uh, surgery. So it's, it's drawing from many different fields, which is really exciting and, uh, and stimulating. I find it's actually a question similar to optics because it's combined a lot of things together. Yeah, so, I'm sure. Yeah. So many different concepts. And I, I think that's great, you know, because, um, you always want to be drawing from other fields in order to advance your own. It, it's, it's, it's healthy, I think. Um, yeah, it's a huge combination. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, can't, can't recall who we spoke to, but we were, oh, I think Dr. Koshal. Oh, we, had a, we had a guest previously who was the associate dean, Dr. Koshal, of optics, and we were commenting on that nature of having multiple fields that you, if not, you're, if not being an expert, you're at least familiar with, and that it has a really beneficial aspect to it. I'm curious, oh. actually, what your views are, if you don't mind expanding on that. Because, like you said, a lot of other medical specializations are just that. They're specializations. Um, so do you, do you see that as being a benefit in that podiatry is general uh, and draws from a wide array of things? You, do you mean a, a benefit to the um, 
to the patients or like a benefit towards like um, how like fulfilling it is to practice in such a field? Um, I guess, I guess both. both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's, it's just exciting to work with so many different uh, fields. I, I think that in every, like a general, take your run of the mill, like podiatry practice, um, they'll see maybe 20 something patients in the morning and you'll have um, a patient with a dermatological issue. So you put on your, your uh, dermatology hat and you're thinking down that line of thinking and those sort of treatments. And then you have a patient that comes in with like some vague pain in the middle of their foot. And then you're like, okay, well, what, what kind of pain is it? Is it neurological pain? Are you getting little zingers and, and sort of shooting pains and numbness? Or is it like a, like a, a throbbing pain? Is it something with their bones, arthritis? Or, you know, so the, the, uh, the realm of play is huge. And you have to be able to be, you're not trying to make a pun, but you got to be on your toes to like figure out like, you know, what's going on, you have to consider all these different fields. And, uh, and then we, you know, a lot of times, if you have pain in your foot, we order an x ray to, to just make sure what's going on, get some visualization. And so we get, have to be able to read an x ray very well, and interpret that figure out, you know, you're ruling out some sort of cancer or arthritis or whatever. Um, so I, I think it's, it's an exciting field because it draws from all those different aspects of, of medicine, specialties of medicine, rather. Um, and I mean, in terms of uh, patient care, being a podiatrist, you simply have to, uh, to know about all of those. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to, um, what we call your differential diagnosis. That's like the list of available problems that this patient might have. Um, you, it would be limited. So you'd be thinking if you, if you didn't know anything about, uh, neurological pathologies, you'd be very limited and probably miss a lot. So it, it's just sort of, uh, um, necessary, um, to be able to sort of, uh, think about the patient in terms of all these different specialties. So here's, here's a question out of left field. I, I told you, I apologize that we are going to try to stick to the outline, but, uh, <laughs> This came up. This came about because I was listening to someone who was discussing kind of the future of uh, education, and it brought up. They brought up doctors. I brought this up to my cousin, who's who's a, a doctor currently out in San Francisco. But the premise is that you actually get a negative outcome for patient care sometimes when a doctor or medical professional holds themselves and their knowledge in too high of self, um, mm. self-esteem, I guess, mm. or they either will not call for a test or if they call for a test and they get a result, they'll say, well, I don't believe that. I think yeah. that, I think it's whatever it is in my head. Uh, and at least to myself, I could see having this demand of a spread of knowledge would make you less apt to fall into that. Yeah, I think that's just a really. I think that's an interesting sort of uh, thought. Um, uh, I wouldn't say that podiatry is like any better off than the other medical professionals because oftentimes when we have an issue, we can't figure out. um, uh, As should be the case with all these other specialties, we refer out to the person that you know might have a better idea, Um, and and I think that should be readily done Um, in practice, 
I've been in many situations. I was just on an infectious disease rotation um, and uh, county hospital up here. Uh, and they, you know, we're talking in our team. We have a team of uh, like our attending infectious disease uh, doctor. We have some residents and fellows and then a couple of students like myself working under them. And we're all talking about this issue. And um, the the attending is like, you know, I think it's this, but we need to consult uh, uh, pulmonary to figure out, you know, could it be what their opinion is um, if they think it's something else. So they go ahead and put it in the consult. And then uh, uh, we get a note back on the computer, or maybe we call them and they say, oh, we think it's this. I think it's sarcoidosis. And we're like, wait, what? No, we weren't leading, we weren't going down that pathway at all. Like now we have to work this patient up for sarcoidosis and we, our clinical suspicion for that was nothing. And so then you, you have to call a meeting together. So we had a, a meeting with the, the pulmonary team and then infectious disease team came, the critical care team came and we're trying to figure out, okay, what, is it, what exactly is going on? And everybody has their leading like assumption of what it is and they have to sort of uh, duke it out to figure out what's the best leading differential, how we're going to work this patient up. Um, and I think an issue that uh, maybe is underlying all this is that we're medical professionals who have dedicated years and years of training. Uh, a lot of us have experience in the field and there's a little bit of hubris that like gets involved there. And, uh, you know, they just think, oh, in my experience, this has been the case. And then the doctor's like, well, what's your evidence? And they're like, well, I don't have any evidence, but I just, this is what I think. And the last patient that I had like this, this was the issue, you know? So I don't know. It, it's an interesting issue. And I think the specialization of, of medicine, which has been ever increasing, um, has its benefits, but also requires a team approach more and more so nowadays. Right. And I'm sure as well that, uh, <clears throat> at least this is anecdotal, but at least in my experience, the every time I go to the doctor, it seems like there are more and more uh, tests that they'll have you do because you can. You know, because you're, you're not technically paying for it. Health insurance is paying for it. So they'll say, oh, why don't you just try these tests? And you go, <laughs> do I need to? Is, is there any reason? Yeah, so right. I, at the same time, I imagine it's increasingly... I don't not not to degrade doctors, but it's increasingly overwhelming amounts of information. Yeah, and there are a couple of factors that probably go into that. Um, uh, one being like medical malpractice is a, yep. is a litigation is a huge issue. So doctors are trying to cover their butts a lot of times. <laughs> they they probably have a, a very high clinical suspicion that you don't have a tumor or whatever. But, geez, uh, what if it is? You know, uh, we, better, we better go ahead and order the test to rule that out. Um, and, you know, in general, you know, that you could say that that's better for the patient. Make sure they don't have a tumor, of course. But, like, a lot of times, like, clinical suspicion is, is very, like, um, can be very accurate. And you don't need all of the tests, you know. Um, right. So that's an issue. Yeah. And a lot of old school. Go ahead. I would also add that not all tests are necessarily risk-free. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's something that you have to weigh all the time, you know. 
Um, right. I had a friend that asked me about CT scans the other day and like, is it worthwhile getting the CT scan and you're exposed to radiation, your increase of your, your risk of cancer increases every, um, uh, radiation exposure. And, um, you know, that, that's a, uh, something that doctors, uh, um, do have to sort of, uh, balance on an everyday basis is, uh, the risk of, of more labs or, procedures, you know, surgeries and things like that, the patient outcome. So, um, that's tough. Yeah. So anyways, thanks. Thanks for humoring me. We got, got a little bit off the outline. Um, <laughs> but I think that it's, it's valuable to discuss and certainly for us, not in the medical field, it's definitely interesting to hear. So yeah. Yeah. Um, but to get a little bit more on track. So, is there any specific, um, speaking of specializations, any specific aspect of podiatry that you in particular are interested in or focused on? Well, um, I got to say that I, I want to have a private practice in the future. That's one of the reasons why I got into podiatry and uh, a lot of other fields, it's like such as family practice, it's harder and harder to have a private practice and a, a life at the same time. Um, but I want that. I'm uh, maybe a little bit stubborn, stubborn in that regard. But um, uh, where was I going with that? Um, so, it, being that I want to be a general uh, podiatrist, I, I want to be good at you know be able to treat anything that comes in. Um, that being said, a huge aspect of podiatry um, that a lot of other fields don't. Uh, necessarily deal with on a day-to-day basis like podiatrists deal with is uh, diabetic wound care. Um, and that's a, a very uh, difficult um, uh, pathology, pathology to treat. Um, and uh, it's something that we see frequently and has a, a pretty high mortality rate um, going down the line because uh, wounds that uh, don't heal oftentimes will get infected. Um, as they get worse, it can uh, lead to a bone infection called osteomyelitis. And uh, we know that um, so far, treating osteomyelitis with antibiotics isn't really a great way to go in the long term because the, there's not a lot of blood flow to uh, the cortex of a lot of these bones so that the, uh, the amount of antibiotic actually reaching the infection isn't very high. And so many times this, it'll come back in the future, um, recurrent infections, and oftentimes it, it leads to amputations. Um, so that's something that, that is like uh, a big battle in podiatry and healthcare in general. It, it costs a lot to our healthcare system. And uh, the, actually the number one reason why a diabetic patient goes to the emergency room is for a, a diabetic foot ulcer. And it's, it sounds so trivial, like, you know, just have a wound on your foot, you know, what? but these, these amputations tend to progress and people who get one amputation oftentimes will need a, another one in the future. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if you want me to get into a little bit of like the um, pathophysiology, the reason why diabetics get these wounds, um, but it might help a little bit. I I, I would, I, yeah, I would like to go there. Before we do, um, I have a question for you and for Zhang Yu as well. And that is, it's my rough understanding, certainly, that uh, there's an increase in 
diabetics in the U.S. Mm. Do you care to comment on how rapidly that's increasing or what, what general percentage of the population is diabetic currently? Oh, um, I, I, I probably wouldn't want to uh, uh, try to put a number on it, but there, it's safe to say there's just a, a huge number of diabetics. A lot of it is um, because of the baby boomer population um, that is sort of reaching that stage in their life where a lot of these long-term chronic diseases are manifesting. Um, and it's, it's a lifestyle issue for, at least for, for most of the diabetics, there is type one, you can be born with, uh, diabetes and such, but the one that we deal with most is, um, acquired diabetes and it's, it's from, uh, ill health and, or, I mean, poor, poor diets and exercise, um, and obesity and, these things are, are just rampant um, in all sorts of communities throughout the U.S. Um, so we will not see a shortage of diabetes or wounds um, for the foreseeable future. Um, it's really a, a tough thing to treat because it is lifestyle, you know. Um, so I know that that's true in the U.S. And I'm curious, is that also true in China? I don't really know about that, but I know actually there are lots of people around, lots of people around my parents, around my family, they they do got the diabetes. But some of them, actually they lead a really healthy lifestyle. And we actually do not know the reason why they got this kind of disease, and they don't know it also. Maybe it's a gene issue, but... Yeah, I think um, (laughs) certain uh, ethnicities are, are more at risk, um, for getting diabetes. And, uh, um, I think a lot of times it's, um, it's sort of a, a, a modern issue as well. Um, I think, um, it wasn't as much of an issue, uh, before modernization. Um, but now everything's just, it's so easy to get lazy with your lifestyle. So I think that most populations that, um, have become very modern and where you can, uh, order delivery food and, you know, get a, a soda um, at the corner store that readily. Um, it's it's present pretty much in all those populations. It's not just the U.S., that's for sure. Um, right. I'm curious, is it, I, I would have to imagine that paints a unique challenge as the doctor when you're talking to your patients and saying, this is, as you said, if it's not type one, uh, this is a lifestyle issue. Yeah. Um, I've, in my opinion, I've personally witnessed kind of a troubling trend where people have pushed back on the idea that, um, obesity, that there's nothing negative about obesity and there's kind of all cause mortality is associated with obesity and like you said, diabetes, et cetera. So I'm curious if it's just do you have patients that kind of push back and say, look, that's not the issue. It must be something else. Um, or have you witnessed that, I guess? I mean, I, I think that there are patients uh, in denial. Um, and it's funny because diabetes, uh, when it's first diagnosed, a lot of times the patients, they don't have any manifesting symptoms. They feel fine or as maybe as bad as they've always felt. <laughs> and, right. uh, and so... Um, they, they don't really listen to you so much and maybe they don't change their, their lifestyles 
hard thing to do, harder than taking a medication. Um, and uh, they'd rather just sort of ignore it. Um, but I think that um, if doctors are doing their job, um, you get better at making the situation real to the patients. Um, a lot of times it does run in the family and those patients have family members who have had uh, issues in the past, uh, amputations from family members, and uh, you can sort of tell them what they are going to be um, looking forward to if they continue this sort of uh, trajectory that they're on. Diabetes manifests in so many ways that really um, is just uh, tough to deal with. Um, we think about retinopathy is one of them, so the blood sugar oftentimes uh, harms your nerves. So retinopathy, trouble seeing, um, you have nephropathy, a lot of kidney disease, kidney failure um, is very common. So you see those dialysis centers, um, those are probably making, uh, the reason why they're there is probably because of diabetics that, um, that probably one of the main reasons at least, uh, who have kidney failure. Um, and then what we see a lot in podiatry is neuropathy, um, just in their um, in their their toes and and their distal extremities. They lose sensation, and uh, that's one of the reasons why you uh, are at risk for developing an ulcer. Because if you imagine you can't feel your feet, um, you have something in your shoe. We we hear this all the time. You know, oh your your grand their grandparents or sorry grandkids put a Lego in their shoe and they didn't know about it. They walk the whole day, right. you know, with the Lego in their shoe. Um, so they just don't have that feedback of pain. My my dean always said it was the, the gift of pain um, to let yeah. them know that something's wrong. Um, and it's funny to think about pain that way, but it's it's there for a reason evolutionarily. Um, yeah, so, so could you comment a little bit? What is the mechanism for why you get that neuropathy Sure. from diabetes and, and what is, I guess you, you spoke about it a little bit that you get ulcers, but can you kind of explain mm -hmm. other uh, outcomes that arise from it? Absolutely. Um, so you have this, um, this chronically high blood sugar level in, in, in diabetics um, and the, uh, the sugar will be broken down into uh, certain byproducts um, that produce reactive oxygen species. So um, uh, these oxygen-free radicals damage blood vessels, um, but also, and those blood vessels will serve nerves, so the nerves aren't getting the, the nutrients, um, but also the byproducts of the, uh, the, the glucose, the sugar, uh, one of them, sorbitol, this will be absorbed into uh, the small nerves and the small nerve endings and through osmosis sort of blow them up, you know, um, just sort of, uh, um, uh, they'll, it'll make them obtain too much, uh, fluid inside of them and that damages them as well. Um, and, uh, you know, diabetes isn't the only thing that these, a lot of these patients have. It's also peripheral arterial disease as well. So, um, the fact that you have, um, issues with your blood flow, but also sensation. That's sort of the one-two punch because you might develop uh, a blister just like anybody would, um, but it's worse because it, you didn't know that it was happening because you can't feel it. Um, and now you have this wound, but 
a normal person would be able to heal a wound in, you know, uh, a couple of weeks if it's a bad wound, you know. But uh, a diabetic doesn't have the proper blood flow to the area in order to give it the proteins necessary to rebuild that, that area. Um, and in addition, um, this neuropathy, the nerves which are firing and keeping our muscles active, when they sort of go by the wayside, we lose a lot of our musculature um, around our feet. Um, and we, we call it the intrinsic musculature. So a lot of times you have um, bony pathology. So the shape of your foot will actually change. Um, and to get, you have bony prominences and things like that, bunions forming just because of the, the issues with the muscle imbalances. And if you think about having changes in your bony structure, that would make you more likely to develop a blister, say if you have a bump, you know, whereas right. a normal foot wouldn't have that. So there's really just so many ways that diabetes is coming at this and, and uh, um, making these wounds occur. Now, once you have a wound, um, a lot of times uh, it's, it's just hard to heal it, like I said, without the, the proper uh, blood flow. But in addition, if, you, if it gets infected, the high blood sugar makes it such that it's, it's uh, um, uh, harder to uh, get rid of the infection. And uh, it's sort of a, a downhill or an uphill battle, rather. Um, and you're just, once you get an, a wound, you're much more likely to develop, develop more in the future, even after amputations and such. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, we see it all the time. And so it's really important to sort of stress these downstream effects to your, your patient population. Um, yeah. And you could you comment a little bit further on the antibiotic approach if they do get a infection? Sure. Um, a lot of times uh, you could treat the uh, the infection uh, just with your run of the mill like generic antibiotic. But being good stewards of antibiotics because we know that uh, resistance to antibiotics is. Uh, increasing and is going to be a problem for all of medicine in the future. Um, a lot of times we want to get a culture of the wound and figure out exactly what kind of uh, bug is in there. That way we can give it targeted treatment to make sure that we're giving the right antibiotic and it kills it and you make sure the patient takes the full course otherwise they, they will develop resistance. A lot of times when we're treating a patient we want to figure out um, what antibiotics they've been treated with in the past, if they've been resistant to those before, um, and uh, that sort of hones you in on what you need to treat them with. Right. Yeah, I'd imagine with a population that's prone, like you said, to get further infections, antibiotic resistance would be particularly uh, detrimental to them. But Yeah, it's huge. Um, sometimes, uh, even when I was on the infectious disease rotation, we deal with that we're like, antibiotic doctors pretty much. Um, and uh, we, we run a test to get the culture and sensitivity of uh, uh, what the bug is and it, what antibiotics it's sensitive to. So we have a lab do this for us and we see a chart and it'll say, oh, it's resistant to um, methicillin, which means that it's 
MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. And so then you're thinking, okay, we've got to use an antibiotic that treats MRSA. Um, but, oh wait, they've already been treated with those and it's resistant to those as well. So we got to take a step up, get some really expensive big gun drugs and, uh, uh, you know, switch to some other antibiotic, um, like a carbapenem or something like that. And uh, then you're also weighing these risks that of the side effects of these bigger gun antibiotics, you know, oh, the patient also has kidney disease because they're diabetic. Uh-oh, that, that rules out half the drugs that we can use now. And so a lot of times you're, you're, you're fighting these things with your uh, hands tied behind your back. Yeah, definitely. So you, you definitely covered a number of unique challenges with podiatry just in dealing with uh, diet. Yeah. Just in dealing with diabetes. Uh, are there any other, there's one that comes to mind, uh, but are there any other unique challenges that you experienced in uh, podiatry? Um, yeah. Um, so, I mean, one thing just as a, a field in general, um, we're a small um, profession compared to all the other uh, medical professions. So a lot of us don't, or a lot of people don't really know about podiatry. Um, and sometimes that manifests in uh, low application numbers and things like that. So we're trying to keep our application pool up. Um, and uh, it can be harder for, um, you know, uh, getting a job at certain hospitals if they don't know what you bring to the table. Um, so I think that that's um, one issue is just how small we are and, and uh, limited knowledge about what we can do to help in the medical uh, team. Um, and there's been good research out that shows that um, adding a podiatrist to the, the medical team um, significantly decreases costs, um, especially in wound care patients. We just have a, a little bit of a, a different way to think about things and prevent these wounds from recurring because we, we think about the biomechanics involved uh, for certain patients and we can help prescribe them shoes and offload certain bony prominences and we're just tuned into the feet so we can you know really try to watch those wounds and help them heal up better so um, I think that's one issue uh, another one is sort of it's more superficial it's the sort of societal stigma against treating feet you know uh, whenever we we're trying to get somebody to go into podiatry like oh feet gross you know and it's, it's funny because not all societies think that way, you know. Um, culturally, in the past, certain societies have glorified the, the feet. I think da Vinci thought that he, they, they were like the epitome of like beautiful like human architecture in, in terms of the body. And it, they are amazing things without your feet. I mean, geez, <laughs> you're, you're without feet. You, you can't go anywhere. It's, yeah. it's hard to work, play, exercise. And that was a huge reason why I got into podiatry and why I feel like we have such a tangible impact on our patients is um, because we are directly involved in their independence. I think that's so great that, that everything that we do helps people um, stay on their feet and stay active and be able to do the things that they love. You can't say that about all, all types of medicine. It's, it's, mm -hmm. 
in general, you could, you could say, okay, yeah, they, they're, you're, you're giving the medication so that they can keep their cholesterol lower. And in the long term, that um, keeps them alive. So that's more independence, you know, but, but right. we, we do things on a day to day basis that help people stay up and, and about. And I think that's, that's so great. Um, and if we're thinking about gross things in medicine, man, I've seen much worse than just feet. You know, I was, I, I've worked in, uh, on the general surgery service and, uh, and colorectal clinic, <laughs> you're literally going into rooms with the headlamp on your, on your head. Yeah. Um, if you know where I'm going with that. So, um, it, in, in medicine, if you're getting into it to treat nice things, um, don't, <laughs> You're, right. yeah, yeah. you're in the wrong field. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you're going right. to see the, the worst of it all. Um, right. I did research and uh, currently slightly involved with, uh, we were trying to image colorectal cancer. Okay. And speaking of gross stuff, that, that was definitely up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I agree. That, that's, <laughs> I've had that thought so many times when I was in, in surgery, with general surgery or whatever. I'm like, wow, people really... Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, step on podiatry, but it's it's not that that gross <laughs> compared to so many types of medicine. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's interesting. I think um, I definitely agree with you. At least in in U.S. culture, uh, maybe not. I would say probably, I suppose, in U.S. culture, uh, feet are fetishized one way or the other. Usually, typically, quite negatively. Yeah. It's usually like gross. Yeah, just right. Super gross. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can think of a few exceptions, but the only thing that jumps to mind is Quentin Tarantino. So <laughs> that's, yeah, but anyways, um, I'm curious, is it, this, is it similar in, in China or? Well, it's actually just several days ago, me and my classmate, no, me and my some friends, we were talking about, because Americans really love wearing socks. That's a, that's a valid question. I personally hate it. <laughs> Wait, sorry. The Americans don't like wearing socks. Is that like wearing socks? She she was she was asking, do Americans like wearing socks? Oh. <laughs> yeah, because it's like talking about this. Like, if you think it's gross and everything, and and because it's like me and my friends we're talking about this issue. Why we saw lots of Americans wearing socks while they were wearing the slippers? Oh, socks and slippers. And say. <laughs> Why we can just not bear food and yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's sort of funny. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they have uh, issues with their feet because they haven't treated them so well, so they're trying to cover them up or something. <laughs> it could be. I, it's astonishing to me. We did invite an undergrad. Um, I was involved with a project that studied the foot mechanics, and they were trying to come up with this idea of how you can make sensors to make better uh, prosthetics, and like, your, to your point, it's astonishing the amount of uh, mental feedback you get from walking, from your feet, from all those, all the yeah. dynamics that are going on, Stimulate. I don't need to expand on it too much, um, but it's astonishing to me because we learned a little bit of biomechanics and then I, I left there and I was looking at people walking and their shoes are <laughs> broken down and they're pronating, under yeah. or over pronating, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And it was just like, oh no, this is terrible. You know, I'm sure you, I don't know if you do the same thing. I, I, I can't not see gate. <laughs> I, every, every person I, yeah. I, you know, on, on the street, um, 
you know, I'm sort of just analyzing how they're walking and, and uh, thinking how would I sort of treat that or, or, or whatever. Um, yeah. So, so I have two questions. One's probably a little bit more technical. Are there any, any uh, major breakthroughs coming in podiatry in the next maybe 10 or so years? Um, one that I can think of, uh, I was doing uh, an externship uh, with a, a Harvard-affiliated program, Cambridge Health, um, up in Boston, and uh, one of the attendings that I was working with uh, was uh, testing out this infrared analysis of oxygen perfusion um, to the skin. So he was uh, taking infrared pictures of people's feet, uh, particularly diabetics with wounds, and getting a sort of map of their oxygen perfusion. And that is, uh, would be a, a factor in their ability to heal wounds because uh, the blood carries oxygen. So you have an area where they don't have any, any uh, uh, oxygen being picked up, you know that it's not getting good blood flow, and thus they're le less likely to be able to heal wound in that area. And that might help you with like surgical planning. If you know this patient needs an amputation, well, where are you going to amputate it? You certainly don't want to amputate it um, farther or close to where they don't have um, any oxygen or blood flow. So it helps with that. And also, you know, maybe a patient um, has lost their blood flow between visits or something like that to a certain area. And so it just sort of makes you think about the modalities that you're using, wound care products and such, um, they might not be beneficial if they're not getting any, any blood flow. I think that's one that's um, probably coming down the pike a, a lot sooner. Um, one that I just sort of off the top of my head. Another one is uh, interesting, and this is great because it, it, it uh, speaks to uh, like the uh, sort of... Um, cross-knowledge between different professions and things like that, and uh, also incorporates one of your Pat's podcasts uh, from Chris, Chris Ford, um, who's doing the plasma research uh, at NC State, and he let me know about this last year um, when I was going to do a, a presentation to uh, uh, the general surgery service, and he was like, oh, have you heard about uh, plasma for, for wound care? And I was like, no, I I've never heard about it. I don't know anybody that in podiatry that, that had before or in other medical fields really, but um, it's uh, plasma treatment uh, for wounds. And uh, uh, because the, the plasma carries this sort of mix of oxygen and nitrogen, radicals, ions, electrons, and UV radiation, it actually can decrease the, the bio burden, the number of bacteria um, on a certain <laughs> wound, which is great because of what we were talking about earlier, with antibiotic resistance. We need to explore all the options out there to figure out how to, to treat um, these wounds. And I think that's probably further than, well, maybe we'll see some research in 10 years in the U.S., um, but uh, actually seeing it applied to patients in the U.S., maybe that's more of a 20-year thing. Um, but I think that's really interesting. Um, yeah. And I will put up a, a link on your podcast for listeners so that they can reference Chris's as well. 
Uh, it was an interesting conversation. It does sound like plasma is trying to uh, trying to get its fingers in everything. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's certainly a positive thing, I imagine. So. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was really cool when he, when he told me about it. Yeah. Chris and I go back to uh, elementary school, actually. So it's really funny how, how our fields can, can be related at this point in our lives so far down, you know. Yeah, definitely. There's a, again, there's a lot of overlap amongst fields. So, uh, on a less technical note, is there anything you recommend to the average person with respect when you, when you put your podiatrist hat on, uh, you had said that you notice, uh, or analyze basically everyone that you see walking. What's like your, what's your quick go-to piece of advice? I think, Quick go-to piece of advice would be uh, your shoe gear, your footwear. Um, a lot of people, including myself, um, like the style of very like low-profile, minimally supportive shoes. I'm wearing Vans right now, <laughs> um, although I do have some uh, over-the-counter uh, insoles in them, which maybe eases my uh, my mind a little bit, um, but. I think when you go shoe shopping, a lot of people that, that have uh, generalized musculoskeletal pain, um, when, you, when you test out your shoes, a good way to do it is try to fold it long ways um, uh, and see if it, can, if it bends right in the middle, right where your arch is, and it's easy to bend it right in half, it's not going to be very supportive. Same if you're sort of torquing it, if you're twisting it. Um, it shouldn't be able to twist that easily. So the, the shoe should be somewhat rigid and where it does bend should be right about where your toes are. Um, so a good athletic shoe um, would sort of be able to withstand those forces and that'll help you sort of um, have something that's supportive that maybe won't um, let your feet down uh, in the future. You know. I'm so worried about my future now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so many people develop foot issues like in the long run it's it's hard to avoid um but there are certain things that you can do and just just take care of your feet um and you you will be thankful for it in the future i'm sure yeah at least anecdotally i uh um didn't treat my didn't, didn't ever wear the best shoes and then i used to do a lot of high impact sports or like a lot of long distance running mm. And had a lot of issues with my lower calves, et cetera, a lot of pain. And I went to podiatrist, got a shoe and foot recommendation, et cetera, and finally shelled out for some very grandpa-looking expensive shoes. <laughs> but uh, they are absolutely worth it. Are they hokas? What's that? Are they hokas? No, they're no? not hokas. It, okay. It's close. Uh, <laughs> they look similar. But but it's astonishing. You know, it, it uh, solves the problem. Instantly. Great. And it was like, wow, man, I've gone through with this pain for like eight and a half years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> what Just an easy fix. Just need to a little bit more money. <laughs> yeah. um, so to step back a little bit, are there any unique challenges? So I know that there are. What, in your opinion, are some of the unique challenges associated with medical school? Oh, man. Um, I'm glad you said unique. Um, because there are so many challenges. Um, uh, I think the things that we always think about are um, the health of the student. You know, you're in medicine, you're trying to work to be somebody that can help other people with their health. All the while, you're, you're sitting in a chair, slumped over, 
and and eating poorly because you don't have time and uh you know the the physical health is is one thing just trying to maintain that i think all medical students can relate um and then mental health is just huge and it's it's i think getting a little bit more um uh, uh publicity these days um but it's that's so important um i think that uh any everybody um sort of needs support that way, or at least to figure out how they can um, uh, make sure that they are staying healthy, mentally healthy. Um, and that's a huge thing. Um, and uh, another one is just maintaining your relationships. And that's part of uh, the mental health as well. Um, you, you're definitely a lot of your friendships um, that you've developed along the way and other parts of the country now, you know, they're strained. People don't understand exactly what it's like that you're going through and how it's hard to keep up with your, your friendships and uh, your, your family relationships. That's, that's really difficult. For myself personally, and I think that all medical uh, students have their own unique um, issues that arise, um, but the one that is that stands out for me is um, like my, my father passing away in, in my first year of medical school. And I think a lot of people have uh, family members who, who pass on during that time because it's, it's four years of your life. You're in your uh, mid to late 20s, early 30s, some of us. And that's just when certain people, you know, tend to pass away and are especially grandparents and such. And um, that's just a, a really difficult thing to, to deal with when you're in the middle of uh, difficult classes and things like that. Um, and uh, it requires a lot of reaching out to uh, classmates and friends and your college to figure out how you can maybe take time off and um, is it gonna affect your grade and all these things. It's just, it's just so, uh, so tough to, to maintain your uh, your life outside of school because school is just always going and you, you're always studying for the next thing. Um, so I right. think that's just, uh, it's just, it manifests in so many different ways for different students, but we're all under stress. And, and, right. Uh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. And I know that, um, the high demand of time effectively, uh, you're sacrificing a huge amount of your, life uh towards school but towards something certainly you care about or passionate about hopefully mm -hmm. but there is as you said um a lot to pay for that you miss out on a lot and that can uh certainly lend itself towards uh all sorts of probably non-healthy mental feelings so no doubt yeah um how about the format of medical school and maybe we'll talk to you, I don't know, in three years again, and you can comment on residency, but, yeah. uh, do you care to comment on that? Sure. Um, I think that, uh, I, I'm not an expert on, uh, uh, I guess, uh, like your, your mix of academic and, and clinical training and what, what particular mixture it should be, um, any of that. But I think that one, one issue with, uh, sort of, um, standard in medical school training, particularly in the, the 
uh, your clinical exposure, your last two years, is how you're getting feedback for your patient interactions. Um, and what I mean is that uh, usually, say you're in a pediatric clinic or something like that, um, you go in, uh, you look up a patient on, on, on the computer, their past office visits and things like that. You see what uh, recommendations were given for them. And then you go in by yourself uh, to the room. You say, hi, I'm student doctor so-and-so. Um, nice to meet you. Um, I see you're, you're back here again. You were here with us last time. You had these issues. We wanted to do this, this, and this. And how's it going? How are you doing? You know, And you, you perform the history and physical exam. Um, and then you say, okay, I think I got a good idea what's going on. I'm going to go report this to my attending. So you leave the room and you, you tell your doctor, oh, this is so-and-so, they have these issues, and this is what I found out today. Um, these are the questions that I, I asked. They related this pain or that pain. Maybe it's worse or better. And then I did the physical exam, and the physical exam was positive for this issue. It was negative for that issue. Um, and the doctor will say, oh, okay, well, um, let's go ahead and do this, this, and this. And maybe they don't even see the patient, which I think they're all supposed to, but... Um, maybe they'll pop in and just say, hi, 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 nice to see you. Just show their face, be like, yes, I'm the doctor. And then you give the, the patient the news and send them on, on their way. And the issue that I feel like is present there, um, and I was talking to uh, a general surgery attending, uh, she was saying that we don't get the direct feedback on how we're doing with the patient because um, nobody's privy to that. They're not watching us. An attending's not in the room there, like with their arms crossed and, and seeing how you're interacting with the patient, how you ask the questions, um, and how you're doing the physical exam even. Um, did you do it correctly? They don't really know. Um, so there's not a lot of great one-on-one uh, -on -one feedback with um, the part that matters, <laughs> our dealings with the patient. There's a lot of trust and uh, that, that maybe we've already learned it or something like that. And we should, you know, have a good idea, but things fall through the crack and you're not always on the same service. So a lot of things are new to you. You know, you're a young student. So, um, there's, I think, uh, an issue with our, uh, clinical feedback. And, uh, I, I'm not saying that it's all the attendings faults because they're stretched thin. They probably have a couple of students and a couple of residents that they're all trying to show, like, um, to help out so they can't be in there for 15 minutes as you stumble through your, your questions and your physical exam Quite, probably be pretty painful for them but um, yeah I think that, that that's sort of a, an issue that we have um, is just the, the feedback from our actual patient interaction hmm. uh, so do you recommend it? Mm, depends on the, the person but uh, I, I definitely recommend uh, if you have the, the correct reasons um, for going to med medical school, the right philosophies, um, if you figured out that it's good for how you want to affect society, but also if it's good for you yourself, it's healthy for you, if you can sustain that lifestyle, then absolutely. You know, that's a lot of caveats that I just placed down. But um, uh yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I mean, so far, I'm not even 
uh, a doctor yet, and it has been extremely rewarding. I, I've had um, just so many patients that um, have I've I feel like I've developed great um, sort of relationships with just in 15 minutes, you know, or 20 minutes, um, and uh, it is extremely rewarding, and that is you know, one of the reasons why I got into it is to, to have that tangible impact. And when somebody cries and hugs you because they were in pain and now they're, they're not in pain, that's amazing. It's a great feeling. Um, and uh, so I, I absolutely recommend it. Hmm. Um, and I guess before, because we're just about out of time, um, before we finish up, do you have any uh, words of advice for people either currently applying to medical school or early on and maybe in their first or second year or so, or any year, actually any, any yeah. advice at all, I suppose. Yeah. Um, being a, a philosophy major, um, in undergrad, I think it's, it's huge that you have the, the correct philosophy, um, going into medical school. That's what's going to get you through those tough times. Um, and it's sort of, it, uh, you know, what, what makes things meaningful in the long run, if you can keep tying it back to that, for me, I think I always focus on that idea of, of providing independence to patients. It's just so, so tangible. And, um, and also just the idea that this is going to be the profession that provides independence for me and lets me do what I want to do in the future. Um, so th I think that having a solid uh, um, reason and philosophy why you're there, why you're suffering through this is... Uh, going to be one of the most important things. So before you, you start medical school, figure it out. Um, and whenever you're going through medical school, just remember it, you know, I think that's what I would say. As always, thank you for listening to this week's episode. We look forward to any comments or feedback you may have. To leave a comment, please visit our website at loft.optics.arizona.edu slash podcast or our Facebook, which is SPL Report. Additionally, you can email us at thespotlightreport at gmail.com. Lastly, we would like to mention that we are always looking for new topics or people to interview. So if you have a topic that you would like us to cover, please let us know. Thank you and have a good week.